All right. Oh, I won't be afraid. Oh, I won't shed a tear. Just as long as you stand, stand by me. That was riveting. Was it really? Yeah, do it again. Oh, don't do it again. You have to record. Here we go. Let's do it. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Secret Level. This is a Geek Tyrant production, and I am your host, Joey Parr, and joining me today is the brilliant Billy Fisher. Man, that's a, Hi, everybody. It's a big crowd right there. I know. I mean, it gets bigger and bigger. The, the more you inflate my head, the bigger the crowd gets around me. <laughs> oh, is that how, how it works? Goes. Yeah, oh, yeah. Awesome. <laughs> uh, the more you describe me in such favorable ways, the, the crowd just gets bigger. Fantastic. Yeah. So how you doing, buddy? I'm doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. Yeah. It's, been a, it's been a wild, wild week. Wild right. week in the wild, wild west. Absolutely. Unfortunately, this week we're not doing a Western, so... I mean... We'll get around to it, but, you yeah. know, for a Wild Wild West week, and we're not talking about a Western... We should have done better. We should have, Yeah, I should have saw I should have saw that coming, but I didn't. Right. No. Well, I think that's, that's looming soon, is the Western. <laughs> yes. Yeah. No, today, today, we are going to talk about an all-time classic film stand by me man this movie i don't think i've ever heard anyone say they didn't like this movie it's pretty incredible it is it is you know it's one of those movies too like from with most of the other movies that we've talked about we're pretty excited and energetic and and really uppity up about how awesome the movie is and we feel the same way about Stand By Me, but at the same time, this is a somber, thoughtful, deep, just very emotional movie. Right. I mean, we're not saying that it doesn't have its funny parts, because it does, but oh, every, totally. every funny part is edged with darkness. Like, there's something, there's some reason why it's funny, you know, that... Um, like there's a dark edge to it to why it makes us laugh. Yes. And the darkness comes from the plot of the movie, which basically follows four boys who go looking for a dead body. So, right. you know, it's, it, it's interesting because there's that line in the movie where, where they're talking to, you know, they're like talking about like having a good time and, and Will Wheaton's character, Gordy is like, Maybe it shouldn't be a good time. Or was it was it Gordy's character that said that? Absolutely. Yeah. It's like maybe it maybe it shouldn't be a good time. We're right. looking for a dead kid. But you know what? We're here. We're doing a podcast on it. We're gonna we're gonna have a good time. We're gonna have some fun with it. Right. And to say that the cast and crew in it wasn't amazing or that they are amazing is an understatement because you look at the the characters in it, you've got Kiefer Sutherland, you've got River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Jerry O'Connell, and Will Wheaton. You've got all of them. Great actors. Amazing cast. Amazing cast. And everyone then, was pretty seasoned. The only the only actor that wasn't seasoned was 
Jerry O'Connell at the time. Everyone else had done jobs before, but this was Jerry O'Connell's first movie. And to play Vern. I oh, mean, and he was perfect as Vern. I so love perfect. Vern. Yeah, I mean, everybody, he does get ragged on for being like the, the dorky one, the quote-unquote dorky one, or the one that just really didn't know what was going on. But he played that, you know, the wide-eyed ignorance so well yeah. in the situation. Yep. So, I mean, still probably his, I know this is going to get a lot of uh, fans mad at me, probably Sliders fans or, you know, Jerry Maguire fans really mad at me, but I think this is his best role that he's ever done. I'm, I'm kind of like going through my head on what else he's done, and I, it's it's hard not to argue. <laughs> I mean, he's done a lot of stuff, but it's not nothing's really sticking out. Right. Other I mean, than he was, Stand he By was Me, a good douchebag in Piranha 3D, but I mean, see, I, I don't think <laughs> I I totally forgot he was in Piranha 3D. <laughs> <laughs> uh, he and Richard Dreyfus, uh, you know, connecting later on. Crazy from this movie to that one. Very yeah, cool. So. All right, well, before we start on our um, our walk down to see the body, what do you got going on this week? What's new with you? What have you been into this week? This week, a uh, couple things, couple things. I started watching the TV show Monk. Okay. I had never seen it before. It was kind of... Me either. ...released during a time where I wasn't watching a lot of TV. Right. And now it's on the Peacock streaming service okay and i'm like i like tony shalhoub so i'm gonna go ahead and and watch this show and it's great it's so funny i love it i'm enjoying it immensely tony shalhoub is 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 a great actor and i can't wait to start watching it because we recently watched the marvelous mrs mazel yeah he's fantastic in that his Comedy His chops. Comedic are timing is on point. It's perfection. At least right. in Monk. And he in everything he's done, his comedic timing is great. I just I I love him. That's yeah. the only reason I wanted to watch it. And and it is fantastic. Nice. It also stars the uh I can't remember I can't remember the actor's name, but mm-hmm. he's the guy that played Buffalo Bill in Silence of the Lambs. He's in it. Oh. So it's kind of weird because you see a, my whole memory of that actor is from Silence of the Lambs and watching him in this doing kind of a comedy show completely wow, different. <laughs> it's like a completely different, seeing him in a, in a very different light. But it's it's fun. I, I've enjoyed it so far. So Yeah, the only two things I know him from are Buffalo Bill, and he plays in Heat. He's one of the bank robbers in Heat. Yeah. Where he plays a scary douchebag in that one. Yeah. So to see him play a comedy role would be great. Yeah. And uh, the other thing, I'm still kind of in that Val Luton phase, still going through that. So this week I watched The Body Snatcher with Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. And this is just... Fantastic, beautifully made film. Love it. Basically, it's it's based on the story. It's it's inspired by the story of Burke and Hare, and how they go, you know, people basically killing people and then selling their bodies to colleges and stuff to study for money and things like things like that. So, 
I've heard of the movie. I'm I'm sad to say I've never seen it. This is this is I've seen it once before. So this uh-huh. is this is my second time watching it and a lot of stuff I don't remember. So it was almost like watching it for the first time. Right. Because uh, when I watched it, I was probably young, way, way younger, probably somewhere as a teenager. Well, it was in we it was in Mr. Callahan's class. I missed that week. Oh, maybe it was. And then he'd talk about it later, and I was like, "Yeah, I wasn't here. I didn't see it." Yeah. So, but great film, probably one of Karloff's best, for sure. And and that's something I, I hope we get down into deeper is the the contrast in contrast and relationship between Bella Lugosi and Boris Karloff. There's there I wanna I, I personally would like to dedicate a couple episodes just to those two guys. Right. There's a lot there's a lot there to, to discuss and unpack. It's like the original Hollywood rivalry was Yeah. Was that. I would I'm love kinda, to, I, I would love to get into that for sure. Yeah. We'll unpack that whole situation later. Yep. What about you, Bill? What have you been up to? Okay, so I'm still catching up on Dexter. What season? Um, Now I am in season four with John Lithgow. Ah, yes. My favorite season. Uh, The Trinity Killer. Yes, yes. Um, Okay, so I love Jimmy Smits. And in season three, he played... His character was amazing. Like, from the beginning, you, you knew... He was gonna die, but just the the road to get there, it was it was one trip after another, and at, at one point, you know, I was I was watching it with Jessica, and she was like, "Oh no, he's gonna get Dexter," and I was like, "After season three, they don't start calling it the Miguel Show; it's still Dexter, so Dexter's <laughs> gonna win, you know." So, but it's it's played out so well that you kind of think, "Well, maybe Dexter's not gonna make it through this one," but it was good, and now we're in the season four, and I'm excited. Um, it's, it's such a well-made show and there's, there's a lot that I like about it, but there's just like a little tinge every once in a while inside that I'm like, it's not how it goes, but whatever, (laughs) you know, we're in a fantasy world that we're going to take it there. So yeah, it's been a lot of fun. That's what I've been doing. I've also started reading the comic series, The Last Ronin. Okay. The, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle graphic novel series. Yeah. And that's one of the emotion, most emotional graphic novel series I've ever read. Really? Yeah. Man, I haven't read a Ninja Turtles comic since the 90s, dude. I never thought I would again. But the concept, like, I can't give anything away on it. The one thing <laughs> I can say is that three out of the four turtles have died. And one of them is trying to avenge all of their deaths by Fantastic. himself. And it's... I'm sold. Yeah, dude, it's straight up reading it gives me chills. I swear there's been... There's never been tears in my eyes. There's just something in my eye at <laughs> different points in there. But yes, they don't tell you which turtle it is for a while. Ah, interesting. All they right. leave it in the dark. Cool. So it's, yeah, it's definitely worth getting into. I've only got the first two episodes... Uh, the first, first two... Um, uh, comics so far, so I have to go get the third one here coming up in a little bit. All right, so yeah, so check those things out. All right, let's go ahead and dive into Stand By Me, and we're gonna start off with the synopsis. 
Go for it. Are you ready? I am ready. After learning that a stranger has been accidentally killed near their rural homes, four Oregon boys decide to go see the body. On the way, Gordy Lachance, Vern, Chris Chambers, and Teddy DeChamp encounter a mean junkyard man and a marsh full of leeches as they also learn more about one another and their very different home lives. Just a lark at first, the boys' adventure evolves into a defining event in their lives. Isn't that a great synopsis? It is. Can you tell me what Vern's last name is? <laughs> you know, it's funny. As I was reading it, I'm like, wait, what is Vern's last name? Tessio. Okay. Vern Tessio. But even the guys in the synopsis didn't know what his last name was. <laughs> Everybody else had a last name. Vern. And then Vern. Just Vern is Vern. Vern, that's who he is. Vern is but Vern. Yeah. You know, the whole movie's about these four kids. They go looking for a dead body. They come across a junkyard man and a <laughs> pool full of leeches. And that's pretty much the movie. And that's it. The end. <laughs> wow. Uh, um, as bad as that know, as bad as that sounds, though, yeah, this is the the film was directed by Rob Reiner, and this is mm. Rob Reiner. Well, Rob Reiner considers this to be the best film he's ever made. That's crazy. Which it it might be. It might be, but this is also the guy who brought us Princess Bride. I know. know? I know. This is, Ah, man, it's a few good men. I mean, this guy, but if he considers this his favorite, I agree with him. This is the one movie that I could watch over and over it, and never it, get bored It really of. is. I I enjoy how it makes me feel when I watch it. Right. Like, I feel comfortable. I feel at home. It's one of those kind of movies. Right. And But it hits deep, man. Like, it does. It yeah, does. It, it hits. It hits some really deep points, and I, I guarantee you, the differences between the main characters, the four main characters, it hits somebody. Some it hits. Everyone. Oh yeah, because there's a relatable character for everybody. Right. Uh, yeah, but it, Rob it Reiner, when made. he screened the movie for Stephen King, who mm-hmm. the, the movie's based on his short story, The Body. Mm-hmm. After the screening the director noticed that King was visibly shaking and he wasn't saying anything. He was just very quiet. Mm-hmm. And he ended up getting up and leaving the room. And when he returned, he told Reiner that the movie was the best adaptation of his work that he had ever seen. Wow. So again, you've got Rob Reiner saying this is the best film he's ever made. Stephen King saying it's the best adaptation of work he's ever seen. But... Remember, this was in 85. A lot of Stephen King movies have been made since then. So, yeah, I mean, you've got like Shawshank Redemption. You've got you've got had a lot come through, but I agree with them on this. Like Misery was great. Shawshank Redemption was great. You know, Pet Cemetery, all that. But Stand By Me is one of the only one that's in my top 10 favorite movies of all time. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, not it's, going it's interesting because Reiner wasn't originally directing this movie. It was really? originally supposed to be directed by Adrian Lynn, but Lynn was forced to hand it over to Reiner when his other film, Nine and a Half Weeks, ran over schedule. Oh, wow. So Lynn had to bow out, mm-hmm. and Reiner took over. And 
I don't know what this movie would have been like if it wasn't directed by Reiner. <laughs> yeah, I'm I it I don't even want to think about that. Yeah. It the thing with Reiner and the the way he directs is that he he like Spielberg gets into the head of the person that he's directing and how they would uh, react in certain situations. That's what makes him such an outstanding director. Yeah. So you'd have to get have somebody like that to get into the the head of each one of these kids, and even the the gang that's following them because it's essentially two stories. It's the it's the younger kids and the older kids. You know what I mean? Yeah. And everybody had a fleshed out character. Everybody you knew where they stood. And I just don't know many people that could have done that. Oh, for sure. On top of that, the movie was different than any of the other movies coming out at the time. Like this was a coming of age story, but it was a story that didn't have a love interest. It was just a bunch of, bunch of guys. And because of that, and because of how kind of different it was from everything that was coming out or being made at the time, mm-hmm. no one wanted to make it. According to producer Bruce A. Evans, nearly every studio passed on Stand By Me. Like, no one wanted to make it. Um, well, yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't fall into the normal coming-of-age formula. There's got to be some kind of, you know girl that they're all trying to impress you know what i mean but this one didn't have that no they went after a dead body uh the studios basically thought that no one was going to be interested in a story about four 12 year old boys on a railroad track (laughs) it was a dark story there was no girl none of the studios knew how to market the movie and what it just it it just wasn't interesting to anybody it's like what right. all these boys hanging out and no one's gonna like fall in love or kiss in the movie? What's what's going on with this? Right. Well, because it's like a true twelve year old boy movie. <laughs> yeah, it's what we would do when we were twelve. Exactly. So, there was there was talk of feeling girls up and stuff uh, yeah. like that. <laughs> That's the closest they were gonna get <laughs> they, though in that movie. But they didn't, you know, they didn't show it. They just, you know, Mm-mm. they talked about it because that's what boys do <laughs> well and, and that's the thing too is like they were going on a trip to kind of view their own mortality i mean both groups you know what i mean it was a more serious subject i mean there are certain trips that you and i went on that you know no girls allowed we're gonna go do this is something guys gotta do oh yeah for sure it, it, it was definitely one of those yep and everybody understands that everybody's been through that yeah the movie ended up thankfully the movie ended up getting made. So Embassy Pictures, which was owned by Coca-Cola at the time, they announced that they were not going to fund the film two days before the project was to start. They were going to do it. And then uh-huh. right before they were about to start shooting, they pulled the plug. Thankfully, Norman Lear, who had worked with Rob Reiner for years on the classic TV show All in the Family, he was one of the three owners of Embassy before Coca-Cola bought them. Uh He believed in the project so much that he agreed to personally finance the $8 million budget of the film. 
Well, so this him. movie would not even exist had it not been for Norman Lear. So we can all thank Norman for stepping up to the plate and funding this film that is that has become an all-time classic. I mean, you got to give it to the guy. He made some of the best television ever made and then made one of the movies that made it into my top 10 favorite films of all time. Yeah. I mean, makes sense. Yeah. Uh, during the casting process, uh-huh. Sean Austin, Stephen uh-huh. Dorff, and Ethan Hawke were all considered for the role, role of Gordy, the, the yeah. role that Will Wheaton ended up getting in the end. Yeah, I think Corey Haim even auditioned for for the role, which would have been interesting because of Corey Feldman, Corey Haim, the two Coreys, right? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, none of them. I mean, they're all three, all four, great actors, but I don't think they would have brought the weight that Will Wheaton did to that role. Well, what's interesting is Corey Haim wanted to play Chris Chambers, mm-hmm. and. Apparently, uh, since he didn't want to play the role of the best friend, he turned down the role in favor of the 1986 film Lucas. Which was a great movie in, in amongst Yeah, itself. I think it was a good move for him. That yeah, role in absolutely. Lucas is a much better role for Haim than Chris Chambers or Gordy Lachance. Yeah, absolutely. Because neither one of those characters was goofy. They were both having essentially midlife crisis while they were 12 years old. Yeah. You know, so he would have been too goofy for it, I think. Yeah. But even River Phoenix originally auditioned for the role of uh, Gordy Lachance. And uh, they liked him for the role of Chris Chambers, which perfect casting, by the way. Perfect. I mean, they're inspired. Absolutely. Yeah, there's nobody else that could play Chris Chambers. And we'll get into it a little bit later in the podcast, but it's crazy how River Phoenix's life kind of mirrored Chris Chambers' life. Yeah, yeah, it's really interesting for sure. Yeah, but yeah, we'll talk about that in a little bit when we get to that part. But when initially making the film Rob Reiner had a rough time trying to figure out how to adapt this story for the big screen it was not an oh, e- sure. yeah it wasn't an easy one to do because originally Chris Chambers was going to be the main character they wanted the movie to revolve around his character and they finally made a breakthrough on the script and the story when they're like no 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 the main character needs to be Gordy Lachance and once they came to that realization, they were able to crack the story and move forward. Yeah, I guess, yes, Gordy is the main character, but there is no Gordy without Chris. Yeah. You know what I mean? Sure. Well, in the, in the initial version of the script, Gordy was just one of four characters. Okay. He was an observer. That was it. He wasn't the main focus. When talking about it, Reiner said, then I was like, this is about a kid who has insecure feelings about himself. He's driven to see this body because he never cried at his brother's funeral service. And his father always paid more attention to the older brother who passed. 
And that's where they found the crux of the story. And when you watch the movie, you could you could see it. I know there's no main character per se that there's it's an ensemble and everyone lifts each other up throughout the story. But there is an emotional weight for sure with with Gordy. And Chris is there to enhance that. Absolutely. Story. And speaking of casting, how genius was the casting of John Cusack? I love John Cusack in the 80s. <laughs> right. I wish he was still making good movies. The last good movie he made was probably Gross Point Blank. Right. It's a great movie. We'll talk about that later, but yes. <laughs> Again, he's, just perfect casting. Perfect right. casting he, all around. Holy crap. He's only in it for what? Three minutes total? But damn, what he brings to that character is so amazing. Just <laughs> the emotional weight that he brings there just explodes on screen. Because he wants his dad to see Gordy as much as Gordy wants his dad to see him. Yeah. And just in those few lines, he keeps trying to push Gordy into the, the spotlight, and his dad's just not having it. Yeah, it's, it's rough, dude. But even though it's only like three minutes, it's perfect. He's great. Yeah, Reiner, Reiner did a lot with the young actors and trying to figure out their characters. When he was working with Corey Feldman, mm-hmm. they together they tested 30 different laughs for the character for Teddy DeChamp <laughs> before they finally decided on how he should laugh in the movie. They wanted to make sure to like pay attention to those little details, that it wasn't Corey Feldman's laugh, that it was Teddy's laugh. Right. Right. And so they had, they worked on that and they came up with one, which it's Teddy. (laughs) It is. It's absolutely, it's absolutely Teddy. And basically they, what they were trying to do is, is get it as similar, as close as they possibly could to the way Stephen King described it in the story. Right. That was the goal. Yeah. And I just, I loved the four of them as the main group. Like, I felt like those guys were, like, best friends in that group. Like, you know what I mean? Oh, yeah, for sure. It, and, again, Reiner, that's all part of Reiner's doing. He, he got these actors together, these kids together, and basically, like, hey, go hang out. Go have fun together. Go get to know each other. So you had River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, Will Wheaton, Jerry O'Connell. They all just went wild. So they ended up getting a lot of mischief. Get in the hijinks in the hotel that they were staying during the filming. Uh, some of the things they did during that is they they would throw the pool side furniture into the pool. Uh, Wheaton would go in and hack it, hack the video games so that it, in the lobby of the hotel so that they could play them for free. Oh, nice! Some light crimes. Yeah. So exactly, exactly. Yeah. And it's funny because it's something you knowing Will Wheaton now and like how he is. It's like oh, he just he hasn't changed a bit. Right, absolutely. <laughs> this is just this is just how he is. They covered Kiefer Sutherland's car in mud. <laughs> they didn't know it was Sutherland's car at first. It wasn't. That made a, me feel <laughs> anxious inside because I don't want to ever make Kiefer Sutherland mad. It just seems like something I'd never want to do. Uh, well, what's funny is when they found out the car was Kiefer Sutherland's, 
and Sutherland conf- Sutherland confronted him and scared the shit out of him. <laughs> nice. Yep. See, told you. Yeah. Scared well, one of the things uh, is Sutherland was actually like did was pretty much method acting here, uh-huh. and so he was bullying the kids off the set too. Like they were just flat out scared of Kiefer Sutherland. <laughs> <laughs> Because Kiefer, Kiefer Sutherland just was, you know, a jerk to him and bullied him off the set as well, which right interesting. Yeah. <laughs> makes for an interesting filming experience for sure. But I'm sure it also helped in the scenes where they are with each other. And they, I guess they don't really have to act at that point. They can just react to how they feel like this guy's going to kick our ass at all times. Yeah. Anytime we see him. It's funny in regards to how Sutherland treated the boys in this because Reiner described him as a soft-spoken, sweet, and intelligent young man. But (laughs) while they were shooting, when the camera stopped rolling, instead of being that soft-spoken, sweet, intelligent young man, he opted to stay in character. And Jerry O'Connell said... I wasn't scared of anyone on the set except Kiefer. He really made himself very menacing to us. <laughs> I mean, it it works because he needed to be. He needed to be their their uh, Sauron. The, you know what I mean? Oh yeah, scary creature always over their shoulder, ready to take him down. Yep. Oh, for sure. River Phoenix's mom makes an interesting mm-hmm. cameo in the movie. Oh, really? Yeah, in the opening scene where Chris meets Gordy to show him the gun, Phoenix yeah. jumps from the back of a truck and says thanks a lot to a couple in the front seat. You can't even see him. You can't see him at all. But okay. Phoenix's mom was riding in the passenger seat. Just That's a little cool. tidbit there. I assume all the parents of the kids were on the set of the film, right? You think? They had to have been. At least one. They had to have some kind of adult there. One or two, I guess. Mm-hmm. I always wondered how parents might react to kids smoking when they're doing these movies, especially kids who don't want to smoke. So you and I used to go on auditions all the time. Yeah. And and there was a few where your character was supposed to be smoking or you're supposed to be mimicking smoking. And And it's funny. I didn't care. I was like, yeah, like, sure, I'll... (laughs) I'll act like I'm smoking. But my mom at the time was very much against it, but I would go into the room for the audition and you could tell the kid before you was smoking. He'd he'd lit up at some point because it was full and you're like, oh, great. Here I am with a pencil acting like it's my cigarette and this kid went all the way. Well, Rob Reiner was an avid non-smoker. He campaigned for anti-smoking laws in California, so... He's not not a big fan, but the kids in the film they would smoke, but they didn't smoke real cigarettes. They pretty much smoked uh, lettuce. They were the lettuce or cabbage leaves, basically hmm. ground up lettuce and cabbage leaves. That's that's what they were smoking in the film. Ah, uh, the best cigarette is right after a meal. <laughs> Good old Verno. Oh, Vern, I brought the comb. <laughs> I dropped the comb. Why'd you bring a comb? comb? You don't have any hair to comb. I brought it for you guys. <laughs> oh, Vern. 
Well, speaking of the, you know, not having the comb on him. Remember when they're on the railroad track and the comb drops out of his pocket? Yes. You see the comb, like, coming right out of the pocket. You're like, oh, 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 oh there it goes. <laughs> there it is. I lost Poor the Vern comb. Lost, lost the only thing he brought. <laughs> Dude, that whole train scene, even though I know what's going to happen, still fills me with anxiety today. Like, just I just watched the movie, and I was like, <laughs> they're going to get hit. It's That's a great it. scene, man. <clears throat> they're so done. It the pain so... in their faces and the fear in their faces is so real that it it gets me every time. Well, and it's crazy too because while they were filming that scene, uh-huh. Wheaton and O'Connell did not look scared enough. It <laughs> it was so frustrating to Reiner that to get that scared ass look on their face like they were going to die. Uh-huh. He yelled at them to the point where they started crying. So Rob Reiner just went ballistic on these kids and yelled at them until they cried. And then he yelled action. <laughs> so <laughs> though the go. tears that you see on their faces are from Rob Reiner yelling at them <laughs> before they shot that scene. Oh, that's funny because I always thought maybe the train was really there because they were freaking out. But I guess they were more scared of Rob Reiner than the train. Well, Reiner said uh, in an interview, he said, we had some guys, it was very hot, 90 degrees out, and the guys were pushing this dolly down the track to follow these boys running. And they were supposed to be hysterical, just crying and panicking. We did it a bunch of times, and they kept not getting worked up. Finally, I start screaming, these guys, the crew are exhausted because you keep messing up. And if you're not worried that that train is going to kill you, I'll kill you. (laughs) they started crying and we started rolling and they ran off the track and gave me a hug and said we did it we did it rob (laughs) oh man Uh. that train scene actually took a full week of shooting oh it looks like something you could do in a day but it took yeah you think you think that's interesting and and in that time, they made use of four small adult female stunt doubles, <laughs> to, to, and made them basically look like the characters. Plywood planks were laid across the trestles to provide a safer surface on which the stunt doubles could run, so they weren't necessarily, you know, in danger at any point. Right. But that scene, though, is. Probably one of the great scenes in movie history, for sure. Right. Did you notice how short the train was, though? (laughs) Yeah, but it still would have killed them. It still would have killed them, but I was like... (laughs) It was a short train, but it's one that, you know, could have did some deathly damage, for sure. Oh, absolutely. I'm not saying the damage wouldn't have been real. I'm just wondering where that train was going. Because it's essentially just the, the... He was going to pick something up. He okay, didn't we'll have it. it that way. He was going to pick it up. Yeah, okay. Okay, that makes sense then. But I have to say, dude, when they you know how they're running and they don't get fully off the track. At one point, they no. jump off the side of the track. That's like 20 feet, dude. And when you look at where they jump, there are freaking boulders. Boulders everywhere. And jagged rocks. <laughs> like and they I'm, would be dead. I'm sitting here like they would be dead. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> 
had their head had they not landed precisely in that spot <laughs> right done their their Absolutely. freaking heads would be split open by their rocks at least broken bones but thankfully just, they were a fine of random events that they survived on that train dodge dig it train dodge <laughs> Oh, that was man. the ultimate train dodge. Yep. I love that. They make me happy. That's just one and see that's the thing is that it doesn't there doesn't seem to be any boring spots in the film. The thing I love about this movie is that there's no real dry spots in the movie. Yeah. Like every conversation, every scene that happens is pushing the movie forward. There's no need for long, you know, drawn out weird shots to, to keep the flow going. It just goes from one exciting scene to another. Even if it's just a mere conversation between two characters, it's still memorable. You know what I mean? Yep. So that's what, that's one of the things I love the most about the movie. Cause you could say the train scene and people are like, yeah, you could say the junkyard. People are like, yeah. Well, it, that's a testament to Reiner's direction, I think, and being able to bring out the emotional aspects of the film and bringing out the emotion and the characters. The fact that Reiner was able to do that made every scene in this film a great scene. Like, right. even though it's not all action, you are enthralled while you're listening to these characters talk to each other, right? And and what they're doing. And you, in that, uh, in the emotional milk money scene, do you remember that one? Oh my gosh, that's the scene where Gordy and Chris are talking about. Well, Chris tries to convince Gordy that he'll never make it in the, the college courses. Yeah. That one. Oh. Yeah, that's a kick to the gut. Well, it's interesting because Phoenix, while shooting this thing, Reiner wasn't getting the response, the emotional response that he wanted from Phoenix in in that scene. And the director took the actor aside and gave him some advice saying, you don't have to tell me what it is, but think about a time that an adult – Somebody important to you let you down and you felt like they weren't there for you. And so to get that response, he's using these acting techniques to trigger these kids' emotions. Like, dude, it's like a therapy session, man. <laughs> right. He's letting it all loose. But yeah, that scene, we've seen it a hundred times, but still it gets me every time because we've all known that one kid that just keeps getting kicked down. No yeah. How hard he tries. Well, even at, but even after, so after he gave him that advice, that scene turned into the film, one of the best emotional centerpieces of the entire film. And, right. uh, Richard Dreyfus, who played the older Gordy, no, the narrator. uh, or yeah, who, who provided the voice of the older Gordy, he talked about the raw talent the Phoenix had and said he was, without question, the best of that group of actors that came up at that time. Movie stardom is not just acting talent. It's not just your ability to move an audience. It's a combination of a lot of things, and he had it. He passed so young that it was a real shame. And Phoenix was freaking a brilliant actor, man. And he did. He went. He went too soon. He did. I mean, and that's what I was talking about earlier. Like at the end of the movie, spoiler alert if you haven't seen it, but 
you shouldn't be listening to this <laughs> if you haven't. The whole point of the movie is Gordy's older self writing kind of a memoir of Chris, his best friend at the time, who lost his life trying to stop an argument, and he went too young. That's kind of what happened to Phoenix. He had the world on his shoulders, and at some point it overwhelmed him, and you know, then he got to the point where he passed away. Yeah. It's, you know... The parallels it, between his character the, in this movie and, and what what happened to him in real life, for right. sure. Yeah. Well, thanks for bringing us down, Bill. So we're yep. going to get into a lighter note here. We're going to talk about some leeches now. <laughs> the leeches. Oh, man. <laughs> yes, the leeches. I mean, if you didn't know what leeches were before that, it made them like the most dreaded creature. This in the was world. the first, this was my introduction to what, to leeches. I didn't know what leeches were until I saw this movie. Oh, really? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I was a kid at the time. I didn't, you know, I never jumped into a lake or had a parent say, watch out for the leeches. So. That was a reality when I was a little kid. Before I moved out to California, where, where we lived, leeches were were a constant fear. Yeah, having grown, having grown up in the city, it wasn't like <laughs> leeches. Right. You know, we had swimming pools <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> They yep. were public pools, which might be just as bad, but there were Maybe. no leeches in them. <laughs> there was just pee yeah. and baby but... Ruths. It's <laughs> uh, another one we're going to have to talk about. <laughs> but yeah, they made that scene was made. I don't know why. It's very real. It's the whole thing. Their reactions to getting the leeches on them. That Just the scene itself, I... I I know there was a thing saying that they were probably real leeches on there, just how real they looked. Yeah, on the kid's skin. I heard, I heard that old, uh, you know, that old story. Yeah, the leeches weren't real; they were plastic. They just, but they did have like the, but um, the makeup and stuff. It, you know, they had that on. Actually, well, let's talk. Let's let's talk about let's talk about the leech scene. <laughs> let's do it. So, the pond that the boys ended up falling into was a man-made pool. The crew... Really? That thing looked gross. Well, the crew wanted them to be safe and secure, so they made it in a way Mm -hmm. that they would be safe and secure while shooting. And they didn't didn't want to put them in a real pond because they didn't know what would be in it. Corey Feldman said in an interview that the joke of the whole thing was that they built and filled it with water in the beginning of June. And by the time they got to shooting the scene, which is at the end of August, <laughs> that that man-made pool had been out in the woods for three months, and they didn't know what was in it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> well, there goes that. <laughs> and as you were saying before, contrary to the urban legend you heard, the leeches were faked. They were molded from latex and stuck on with rubber cement, which the boys found irritating on their skin. Uh Will Wheaton said in an interview that the cement was mixed with red coloring to simulate the blood caused by the leeches. Uh It didn't come off easy. So when they just went out as kids just to goof around or whatever, they still had those red marks 
over their bodies. And this kind of denied them some fun. <laughs> oh, really? Yes. So when they tried to go into this water park, they had this water slide called the Hydro Tube Water Slide that they used to go on on okay. days after they were filming. They wouldn't let them go on after that because it looked like they had a contagious skin disease. <laughs> so like they were denied admission because of the fake red marks on their body that they thought were some kind of weird, funky disease. That's awesome. And That's Wheaton funny. also said, when talking about the, the man-made pool or swamp, mm-hmm. whatever you want to call it, he said, it was cold and really gross. It skeeved me out. There were water slides in the mall, and the day that we shot the leeches, we went to go play on the water slides like we always did, and they wouldn't let us in because we, they thought we had open lesions on our skin. Well, yeah, makes sense, but yeah, it had to be awful. It looked like they had fun. Oh, yeah. But, I mean, the fear on their faces is actually pretty good when they were it like <laughs> tearing oh the leeches gosh. off and it's almost like one of those things like what would i do in that situation would i freak the would i freak out that hard probably at 12 years old probably and like Corey feldman makes a noise during that time like this like whimpering noise when they're trying to get the leeches off of them that I, that's what made me think they were real leeches because he's making a noise that i would make if i was <laughs> freaking out because i had leeches all over me Oh man! It's and then, like and then, new- and then there's the then there's the classic scene <laughs> where poor freaking Gordy <laughs> looks down in his underwear. He's like, "Oh shit, Chris! Oh shit, Chris!" <laughs> he just looks at him with these puppy dog eyes of death. <laughs> Bring his hand up. It pulls blood. that leech out of his freaking crotch. <laughs> oh shit, Chris! <laughs> yeah he legit thought he was dead at that point <laughs> that was it jeez oh man well now you know don't let leeches near your crotch yeah and it's funny because uh stephen king says in the special features of the dvd that mm-hmm. the scene with the leeches actually did happen to him that was inspired by experience that he had when he was a kid well, that explains everything. Yep. All the books, everything. <laughs> Every, the leech is just his, everything. Yep. Leeches made him what he is today. That's awesome. Do you remember the river name that they were supposed to be following? No. The Royal River. The Royal River. It okay. is mentioned in several Stephen King novels. So is it kind of like he likes using names over and over again, so I always assume those are just family members. So, <laughs> well, I think it's this, I, because a lot of them are set in the same in, in Castle Rock, right? The Royal or River is just Dar- one of those settings. Derry, Maine, wherever. Yep. All of his books are set somewhere close to there. It was. Uh, it was also mentioned in Salem's Lot, uh-huh. as well as the Shawshank Redemption. It is the river that Andy threw his gun in. Oh, there you go. Kind of a cool, huh? Yeah. I would have loved it had the kids found a gun in the river. 
Yes, that would have been rad. <laughs> that would have made me so happy. <laughs> it's as a Stephen King fan. If you've read any of his books, I've read ninety nine percent of his books. Every book has a connection to the other one. There's always a nod to some other book. They're all in the same world. So that's that would be fitting if they found the gun yep. in the Royal River. That would have been cool. Yeah. Let's remake the movie and put the gun in the river. See, that's a bad idea. I don't know why bad I said idea. that. Yeah. Stand by me should never be remade. Never. Dude, if it was remade, it it would be like they would put a girl in it. Yeah. <laughs> they would absolutely. put a they would put a love interest in it. It just would not be the same movie. They would do everything that they would do everything opposite of what made this film so good. Yeah. So yeah, let's not put that yep, out there. Yep. Dang it. It's out in the universe. I hate myself for doing that. <laughs> Stand by me will never be remade. Shit, Chris. <laughs> Shit. Oh man. Ah, uh. All right. Well, have you ever thought about the scene where Gordy sees the deer and doesn't tell anybody? Remember that scene? He's sitting on yeah. the railroad tracks and the deer comes crossing by and he says, I, I never spoke to them about it. I never said anything about it until just now when he was writing the story. I th- actually think about that a lot because we all have our own deer moments. You know what I mean? Dude, I know, bro. Just one memory, one thing that only you were Let me share before. one with you right now. I'm just, jo- I'm just joking. <laughs> I'm ready. I wasn't ready for to share mine, but you go ahead. <laughs> no, but so uh, what was the uh, what was the reasoning behind that? Yeah, so the significance behind the deer moment and the reason why he decided to keep it in, to keep it to himself until he was an adult. There's two theories that are often suggested. One, mm-hmm. after all the bad things in the lives of the four boys, the death of Gordy's brother and the treatment of his parents. Ace and mm-hmm. his friends, Teddy's abusive father, Ray Brower's death, etc. The deer represents that some things in the world are still beautiful, and this gives him hope. He wanted to keep it to himself so that nobody could debunk his theory. Hmm. The second suggested theory is Gordy has spent the entire trip in the constant company of his friends not doing or saying anything that isn't seen or heard by the others. The deer is one thing that is personal to him from the entire time that they are searching for the body. And I love both theories, and I think both theories are correct. Yeah, they both work. Yeah. It can be one and the same. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Beautiful moment in the film, though. It it was. And, you know, like I said, we all have that moment in our lives. We've all had... Our our secret, the world is beautiful moment, and that just happened to be his. All right, so I'm going to tell you mine, Billy. Okay, go. My beautiful moment that the world is a beautiful place mm-hmm. is I was videotaping this this parking lot, mm-hmm. and this plastic bag blew in to frame and started like swirling and dancing. <laughs> Please go on. <laughs> Do you know where that where I'm getting this from? It, it sounds like the most beautiful thing that I could ever have seen. <laughs> All right, you get it right. American. I'm beauty. with you. 
Okay. Of, of course. Of course. Yeah. I mean. Oh, is it American Beauty? Is that what it was called? It was American Beauty. It was. All right. Yeah. It's been a long time since I've seen that film. <laughs> I don't know. Okay. So I have a. Have I ever told you my theory of American Beauty? No. Okay. A little off topic, but here we go. American Beauty to me is like the first act in a three act movie. Like, I think we got gypped out of two acts in it. You know what I mean? Yeah. Because essentially it was just setting up for his death. Okay. I think the trial would have been like the whole investigation slash trial part of it would have been way more interesting than the movie that came before it. Because everybody had a hand in it. Everybody was around. Everybody could have. Everybody was a suspect in that movie. Everybody's a suspect. Everyone is a suspect. But you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it was an okay movie. Eh. <laughs> All right. Yeah, but I think it would have been better. My version would have been ten times better, but nobody asked me. Sorry, Church. I just had to make a little joke there. I appreciate that. Anyway. I appreciate your joke. Because yep. I say it to Jessica all the time. Anytime we see a bag lying on the ground, tell her it's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. Oh, cool. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, so that part stuck with me out of the movie, but that's about it. <laughs> also, real quick, did yes. you know that this, do you remember the secret knock to the clubhouse? <laughs> yes. Okay, so that was thought of by Wheaton, Phoenix, and Feldman on the day it was shot. And it was another way to make Vern look more pathetic. <laughs> they just like came that. up with that scene just to, you know... So make just burn. to make him the tag along. Yeah, the just group. exactly. And I always found it interesting that when Vern's the one that tells them about the body, it's like, hey, we should go see it, right? right? But then when the but then when they're actually like, yeah, let's do it, Vern's like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know, guys. And he changes his mind, and they they have to come back and entice him. Be like, "Come on, Vern! Come on, Verno!" And they give him the nugget and stuff like that. And then he caved. He's yeah. like, "All right, all right, ah!" And everyone's like, "Yeah, <gasps> let's go see a body." <laughs> you know, that's what kids did back then. It is what kids did back then for sure. <laughs> they went and looked oh, for dead bodies. Ah, uh, the pie eating contest, Billy. Oh yes, lard ass, lard ass, lard ass, lard ass. Probably, and, and like, like I said, it just continues on. Like, there's no dull scenes. It just goes right into another thing that you're like, oh, oh, you not forget. And about what the pie I love about scene. this scene is that it is a over the top, hyper stylized. See, because this is a story being told from Gordy's imagination. Right. So anything could really happen in this story. Yep. And it, it, it takes us out of the current realities of the situation that they're in. It pulls us right. into this completely different, <laughs> this completely different feel, tone, it pulls you out of the movie for a moment and gives you this lightheartedness. The same, because Gordy is telling the story to his friends to have fun 
They're right. on this. They're on this journey to see a dead body. You know, there's things that are weighing heavily on their minds. And here's a story that kind of will entertain them. And so in doing that for his friends, he's also doing that for the audience. And mm-hmm. I love that about the scene. It, it pulls you out of this just for, just for a few minutes so Gordy can tell us this wonderful story of Lardass. And the story itself is a funny, well-made story, but what I get out of it every time is he wrote down every detail. Like, in his mind, he has every detail down. He's talking about the boss man, Bob Cormier, who's the, the radio DJ that's oh, yeah. there. He talks about the Mayor, Mayor Grundy is there with his secretary. And, like, girlfriends barfing on boyfriends, kids barfed on their parents, a fat lady barfed in her purse, <laughs> the Donnelly twins barfed on each other. And the women's auxiliary barfed all over the benevolent order of antelopes. I love like, the benevolent order of antelopes. Right? But, I mean, that's the detail. I mean, a great writer is going to go into detail like that. So it's a story within the story. And the mini story is just as good as the rest of the movie. Yeah. And this was a scene that Rob Reiner is said to have agonized over. <laughs> he was Because he was having trouble trying to envision what kind of writer Gordy would become. And right. how that would play out in his 12-year-old, in the mind of a 12-year-old. Right. Uh, Reiner said, ultimately, in my mind, he became Stephen King. And Stephen King is a great storyteller. And most of the stories he tells are supernatural or there's horror involved. But he went ahead and decided to top it off and make it kind of a cartoonish type scene. Right. Uh, the way that that might appear in a young boy's mind. And the audiences went crazy for it. People love this scene. Of course. And, I mean, and they almost, uh, apparently, they, they debated on whether the scene should be left in or not. But luckily, wow. they left the scene in. Yeah, no question. It, it rides the line of horror because of the puke is really extreme. But then it gets to the point where it becomes comical. Well, and it, it's a revenge story. Right. It absolutely is. He's going, he's taking everybody down. Yeah. Uh, drinks the castor oil and yep. all the eggs. Barf. <laughs> oh, man. But yeah, when they decided to leave that scene in the film, Reiner knew they had to go over the top. They had to just go for it, and that barf had to look good. So the, the barf was actually a mixture of blueberry pie filling and mm-hmm. cottage cheese. And they had and they had multiple cameras around filming so that they could get the shots of it when everyone was puking it up. Oh, dude, and the velocity of that puke <laughs> coming out of him. Like, it, in the crowd, it was normal, but coming out of Lardass was just... I was like, yeah, perfect. And, and I do have to say, the pie-eating mm. contest, I want to talk about that for a minute. Okay. They're shoving their faces in the pie. Right. And they're eating it. And they keep coming out like they, they they're like shoving their head, they're they're eating it and then they pull their head out. They're like, "Done." But then you look at the pie, you're like, "Yeah, there's still a lot of pie right there. You're not done with anything." Right. They're <laughs> you essentially are, just smashing their faces into you, the pie. You and hardly ate good. any pie. Let's be honest, lard ass. 
Right. Well, he's mostly pushing it out of the pie tin. <laughs> I know. I thought that was funny. Anyway. It is funny. <laughs> it's the little uh, stuff that brings us to the secret level. The the kid who played Lardass, his name was Andy Limberg, uh-huh. and he described the process of shooting that scene. He says, oh, okay. the first time the crew tried the Ralphine effect, they used mm-hmm. a power washer, but that didn't work. The stream was too fine. Finally, after a little experimenting, they got four or five guys to press down at a giant plunger on the top of a cylinder, which pushed all five gallons of pie filling (laughs) up a vacuum hose through my shirt collar and out from a tube taped to the side of my face. Amazing. Yeah. The velocity of that pie filling looked like it could kill somebody. (laughs) <laughs> I really did. <laughs> oh, man. And he went on to say that he remembers talking to the extras, and they were joking about how sticky and co- covered in goo, I, you know, like how everything was. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently, I, I guess they shot it over the course of a few days, and they, you know, they vomited on each other. So the expression of satisfaction I make was like a bit truthful. So he got to sit back and just kind of watch everyone else just vomit on each other. And he just (laughs) sat back and enjoyed it. Right. As a spectator, which is great. I love how he just folds his arms, sits back, and he's just like... Just smiles. Complete barfarama. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. That's awesome. And uh, yeah, Lindbergh also said that a child extra actually threw up for real during the process of the Barfarama scene. Dude, I wouldn't doubt it if I was there. I probably yaked too because the smell of blueberry pie filling and cottage cheese all over the place had to be freaking nasty. Ugh. <laughs> it's okay, kid. I got your back. <laughs> uh, the boys, at the end of the story, when, when Gordy's done with it, his friends... They didn't like the ending. You remember that? They're just kind of like, mm-hmm. they're like, great story, it? but didn't like the ending. It's like maybe, maybe he could have like joined the army and then you know <laughs> killed his father and <laughs> right, right. So I and at that point you're like, oh, this is this is what Teddy wants to do. <laughs> right. Teddy this wants to kill dream. us, join the mil- kill his father and join the military. That's 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 where Teddy's head's at right now. Right. It's interesting because you kind of get that out of him. You get this. You get this Pain. thing where he's looking for some escape. Right. And through Gordy's story, he's able to find his own story on how he'd like it to end for him. Right. If it were him. So and that's kind of like how a lot of Stephen King's books are. Oh yeah, for sure. For sure. Falls into that. Like, if any of you read the Dark Tower series, you feel my pain on that one. <laughs> oh, my gosh. But surprisingly, the Matthew McConaughey uh, Idris album movie kind of filled in that gap at the end of the book. Yeah. So all well, of you who are disappointed in it, read the books first, the, then watch that movie. The whole thing with the, the And this is kind of a runny joke in pop culture. Because Stephen King's endings are said to often be unsatisfying or disappointing. 
So proves my point right there. That's where that came from. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting when you talk about like the connections to Stephen King's books. Mm-hmm. Not only is the uh, the river part of a part of that world, but Ace Merrill later reappeared in the book Needful Things. Mm-hmm. The dog Chopper is often compared to Cujo. Right. The characters with, are familiar with Shawshank Prison again with the with the would have been great for them to find that gun. <laughs> right. But Shawshank turns up in a lot. Yeah. Of, like, oh yeah, for sure. Dolores Claiborne and just a lot of his movies mention Shawshank Prison. Yeah. And Teddy DeChamp was actually first mentioned in Stephen King's first book, Carrie in which Carrie destroys a gas station he once worked at. Oh, that's crazy. Isn't that, isn't that cool? Yeah. I love little things like that. I love it. They're all over in Stephen King's books. They're all over the place. Oh, I know. The money? Mm-hmm. Remember when they, when they're like, they forgot their money and they needed money to go buy food oh, there's for the food. trip? Yeah, the goocher. When they, when they come up with, the money, the amount that they end up with is $2.37. Uh-huh. The number, 237, appears in quite a few Stephen King stories. It is, it is a number he likes. Yeah, it, it definitely is. And when talking about Corey Feldman uh-huh. and the character Teddy, he says that Teddy was actually the closest to his personality and personal life at the time. In comparing it. Just a little bit off the rails? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, man. I mean, that's he was perfect in that in that role. Just the little freak out that he has at the, you know, at the, um, when they're at the garbage dump, it all comes out to the surface for a little bit. And yeah. Actually, he's the one at the end that I'm most concerned with, you know, because they say he's kind of Vern and... Teddy kind of faded into the background. Yep. I was just always interested to see what happened to Teddy. His gas station gets blown up and carry. That's what happens to him. <laughs> well, actually, we'll we'll kind of get into what happened to the other characters. Nice. And let's do it. You know, it was a it was an interesting journey for for these boys. And the moment they find the body, you're just like, I mean, it really the whole mood of the film, you feel it change. It like takes uh-huh. everything down to this weird tone, right? Uh-huh. And you're like, very. You've been on this journey with these kids, and then all of a sudden it turns into this real, uh, very real somber, like heavy, like whoa. And you feel that f- from the kids acting for sure, right? Well, even the surrounding area changes because throughout the whole movie, the it the lighting is bright and the days are bright and vibrant colors and when they get to the body everything's all of a sudden gray yeah and the tone has changed i remember it this is an interesting scene because when i was a kid i i don't remember seeing a lot of movies with dead bodies in it when Uh i was a kid and so the dead body was emphasized as much as it was exactly exactly and so i have this seared memory burned into my mind of Mm -hmm. seeing this dead kid's body in this movie 
Like it was a real thing that I saw. I know it's from the movie, but mm-hmm. because my mind was, I was young and impressionable when I first saw it. And it was kind of like this first time I've ever seen. It was like, I was seeing a, a dead body for the first time, just like these kids were. Right. And it, I, I think that's interesting because of how that is seared into my memory. And it's, it, there's, there's a, how I remember it in a way where it seems real. So whenever I watch this movie and that scene come up, scene comes up, there's this weird feeling that I get still. I don't know. It's really, it's almost like, <laughs> I don't even, I don't even know what to call it. It's a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting uh, thing I get though, that I don't know, it's like some kind of PTSD or something. <laughs> cause it, cause it kind of like, I remember as a kid, it really like kind of affected me, but I don't I mean, know. I mean, that was what happened to them in the movie. That's exactly what happened to them. Oh, yeah. Was, like, they came face-to-face with their own mortality right then. Yeah. Well, and then not only that, but, you know, then freaking Ace and his goons show up and ruin the party. And they pull you out. There's, While it's a sad, somber moment, it's also kind of magical in a way. And I don't mean that in, like, a good way, but I mean, like, you're taking, again, you're just kind of, the movie's flooding over you and you're experiencing it. And then Ace comes in and you're just, it takes you out of this mood. Mm-hmm. It pulls you right out. And then there's that whole scene between Ace and, and, and Gordy, Gordy. and Chris. Yeah. And you're just like, whoa, great scene, by the way, just oh. all around. Great scene. Freak, man. Every time and I it- watch it, it just re- it hits me every time. And and I think that's one of the reasons it's there, like the whole reason they went to go see it, because they knew where it was. They know the whole town's looking for this kid. Yeah. No one can find this kid. They know where he is. They want to be the first to see him. And I think it affects them in a way that they didn't expect it to. Yep. Yeah. And it's weird because I can relate to it for some weird reason. I wasn't on the journey, but I feel, I feel like, like I was. When I first right. watched it, so weird how that works. I love movies. Anyway. <laughs> movies are the best. So you asked earlier what happened to the other guys in the movie. I mean, we know that Chris died from being stabbed in the neck. Mm-hmm. Gordy, we lived to have a family, became a writer. Mm-hmm. Chris was actually the third of the four to die. Uh, in the original short story, Teddy uh-huh. dies in a car crash, and Vern, and dude, when I read, I didn't read the story until after I saw the movie, till later on in life, Vern dies in a house fire, and for some reason that really, like, like I was really sad, <laughs> like, uh-huh. man, Vern died in a freaking house fire, that sucks, Teddy died in a car crash, and it's just sad because you love these characters so much. You come to like really care for them, and to find out that three of the four end up dying the way they do in these in these tragedies is so sad. Wow, that just makes my heart hurt. (laughs) Right? I always hoped wealth because I never read the short story. I should read the short story. I haven't read that book that contains the short story. Okay. So I didn't know that happens, but I always wished well for Teddy and Vern. Like I hoped, you know, they yeah, were doing well. Yeah, me too. 
and it, it it just didn't work out for him. Doggone it, man, that's hardcore. Yeah, I know. Sorry, guys. Sorry to bum you all out with that. I mean, well, this is never a you know that kind of movie anyway. It's never gonna make your heart happy, kind of thing. So after the movie wrapped, after they were finished shooting, they actually the movie didn't have a distributor. They didn't know if the movie was actually going to end up being released. They brought the film to every studio. They couldn't find distribution. The producers didn't think that Columbia was interested in the project because they had previously passed. However, mm-hmm. by the time they finished the movie, it was under new management. Mm-hmm. And the new studio head loved the film. And one of the reasons why the movie actually finally got picked up uh-huh. was because of River Phoenix and not because of his acting. Oh. It's because the girls loved watching him on screen. <laughs> so what the, so producer Bruce Evans, he said what happened was Columbia's production head wasn't feeling good. So he had the movie shown at his house. He brought all the marketing people over. He brought all the executives. But the crucial members of the audience were his two daughters. And about halfway through the film, they were in love with River Phoenix. (laughs) And so while the movie didn't have any love interest, they had a kid in there (laughs) that they knew was going to sell tickets to the young ladies. (laughs) Naturally, and that's that one of the course. that's that's one of the reasons why the film actually got picked up. I mean, I believe that absolutely. Women loved River Phoenix. That guy. I was gonna go down a sad rant to, again, so I decided to stop against that. We're not gonna do that. We're gonna go out on a higher note than what we came in on. Well, I might take us down another little <laughs> crap. <laughs> I kind of want to talk. I kind of want to talk about uh, Gordy's brother's Yankee cap. Oh, let's do it. Because Kiefer Sutherland, he takes it from him him. and gives it the eyeball. Mm -hmm. The eyeball puts it on, and it's interesting because Kiefer Sutherland's first instinct was to put it on his own head instead of handing it over to Eyeball. Uh-huh. But Reiner told Sutherland not to put the hat on as a way of showing that Ace was stealing it just to be cruel to Gordy and not because the hat itself was important to Ace. Sutherland and Wheaton both confirm in the DVC's behind-the-scene commentary that the reason that Gordy never gets the hat back from Ace is that Ace threw it away immediately after stealing it from Gordy, that sick son of a bitch. What an asshole. I can't oh, it. I was so mad when he took the hat. So mad. I don't mean to bring it back down to the level of shit, but doggone it. <laughs> but, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, it shows in the end when Gordy finds his bravery, It it's a culmination of all these things that Ace was everything that his brother wasn't. And he couldn't stand in a world that his brother couldn't be there and some this douchebag could be yeah so he was he was more than willing to shoot that dude you know that he would have shot him right in the face yeah and he, he should he should, <laughs> should oh shot him never mind no 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 i mean we're glad he lived 
And I, I meant to bring this up earlier, but I totally forgot. But the lead actors, they weren't allowed to see the the body of Ray Brower until they unveiled him on camera. The method of this was used to unsettle the four boys and gain the best reaction possible from them. And Ray Brower was played uh, by Kent Luttrell, and he also served as a stand-in during the production. So he 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 was around all the time. But they didn't see him dead until they saw him dead. Yeah. Oh, that would have been that would have really messed with their head because they would have seen him throughout the whole filming of the movie, and then all of a sudden, oh, that guy's dead. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. What a way to tear out their guts. Good job. Right. Yeah, it worked. And just a few other things uh, before we kind of close this up. Just a few little tidbits of fun information, fun silly information. River Phoenix lost his virginity during filming. Reiner remembered Phoenix came into work one day with a big smile on his face, and after spending the night with a family friend, he wrote a little note to Reiner on a piece of paper that said, it finally happened. He needed to share it with somebody. Corey Feldman would drink alcohol on the set, uh, kiss the girl off screen, and smoke pot for the first time during the summer of 1985 when he shot the movie. Hmm. Okay, we can pinpoint the part where it starts going down for him. Michael Jackson was originally asked to do a cover of Ben E. King's Stand By Me, the original song for the movie. But in the end, Reiner thought the original version was better suited for the film. Great choice. Yep. (laughs) Another song that should not be remade. So Columbia Picture was concerned that the original title of the movie, The Body, was misleading, and they decided to rename the film Stand By Me. According to the screenwriter, it sounded like either a sex film or a bodybuilding film or another Stephen King horror film. Rob Reiner came up with the name Stand By Me and it ended up being the least unpopular option. I'm kind (laughs) of curious to know what the other options were other than the body and Stand By Me. What? I said I feel a little left out in this. We should know. I know. But in the end, Stand By Me works great. No problems with the title. I think it's great. Corey Feldman said in interviews that he and River Phoenix used to meet up at auditions together all the time. Mm -hmm. And while other kids would be waiting nervously for their turns to audition, Feldman and Phoenix would play outside until they were called. They just had that natural, like, I don't care feeling when they went to auditions. Right. Which is probably why they're just so good at what they did. Exactly. Hmm. Rob Reiner developed such a good working relationship with Stephen King after this movie Uh that King agreed to sell him the rights to Misery. Uh And Rob Reiner did direct Misery, by the way. Right. Another great film. He also went on to produce adaptations of 1408 with John Uh Cusack and Salem's Lot. One other thing, Kiefer Sutherland claimed in an interview that in one of the locations of the film, a Renaissance fair was being held, and the cast and crew attended that Renaissance fair and bought some cookies. Unfortunately, or fortunately, depending on how you look at it, the cookies turned out to be pot cookies. And two hours later, the crew found Jerry O'Connell crying and high on the cookies somewhere in the park. 
in that area. <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, well, there you go. A few other things. Corey Feldman and Jerry O'Connell would later reunite in Sliders. Electric Twister Acid Test in 1996. There we go. Sliders again. Corey Feldman and Keith Sutherland would later co-star in The Lost Boys in 1987. Rob Reiner and Keith Sutherland worked together again in 1992 on A Few Good Men. River Phoenix, Corey Feldman, and Will Wheaton all made appearances on Family Ties. Uh And the very next year after the movie came out, Will Wheaton appeared on Star Trek The Next Generation. Crazy. Isn't that weird? Stand yep. by me, and then a year after it's released, Star Trek. <laughs> kind of crazy. Mean, and this one was always important to me. It's probably not as important to everybody else. But um, in um, in Kiefer Sutherland's gang, uh, he had um, both Chris's older brother, Eyeball, and Vern's older brother, Billy, who were the ones that gave up all the information on where Ray Brower was found. Vern's older brother, Billy was played by actor Casey Zemesco, okay. who later on would star in the movie Young Guns with Kiefer Sutherland. Ah, look at that. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. He's also known as the guy wearing the 3D glasses in Back to the Future. So, I mean, <laughs> those are his big accolades. Before we close up, Billy, do you have yes, any quotes that you'd like to share from the movie? Do you have a favorite? I know this sounds... Weird, but my favorite line, it, we already did it with Barfarama, was always one of my favorites. But Vern's sheer concern over the Goocher, that always got me. <laughs> it's a Goocher. It's a Goocher, man. I, I think of that every time. That's how I think of Jerry O'Connell, just saying that over and over. All right. Like we're, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> what do you have? You know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of deep stuff in this movie and i kind of wanted to pick something a little bit more fun and lighthearted for my quote (laughs) so (laughs) there we go when everyone's sitting around the fire i know exactly (laughs) where you're going with this (laughs) and they're (laughs) and they're cooking their meat over the fire verns drops in (laughs) it's like oh man come on doesn't even have any more it's like this isn't funny what am i supposed to eat and teddy says you could cook your dick. <laughs> and thanks, Chris. And Chris says, it'd be a small meal. <laughs> but that's how we talked. That's we just, and I just had to pick that one because it was funny. Another one that kind of stuck out too, that always just kind of like made me like, wait, what? Like kind of grabbed my attention. Mm-hmm. is when Chris calls Teddy a four-eyed pile of shit. And then, <laughs> and says, and then Teddy says, a pile, pile of shit of has a thousand <laughs> eyes. Yeah, there we go. I was going to say hundred eyes, but yeah, it has a thousand eyes. It's like, what does what? that even mean? <sighs> of course. Anyway, that's it. So right, can... thank you very much for listening, everybody. Uh, mm. Thanks for going on this journey with us for Stand By Me great film if you haven't seen it in a while you should watch it again it's a it's a great movie in the meantime like subscribe reach out to us offer some 
you know, input, advice, suggestions. If you have a movie you want us to break down, hit us up with it. We'd love to hear what you guys have to say. So thanks again for listening, everybody, and goodbye. See ya.